How far have you pushed yourself? I mean, what's the most fragile edge of yourself that you've stumbled out towards? I mean, if I'm thinking about me, well, there was the time I went caving, which is called potholing in the UK or spelunking, great word in North America, and kind of getting stuck right down in the darkness, kind of wedged between a narrow gap. That, that was an edge. Then there was the time I parachuted, you know, just leaping out of a plane. <laughs> That's definitely an edge. But really, if I had to pick one time, it was the time I ran a marathon. I hadn't done any training. I was about uh, 20 at the time. I mean, I came in last. and I came in at the very limit of what I could have done and who I was. I mean, I was hallucinating running. It was, it was so difficult. It was the edge, or at least, at least I think it was my edge. I mean, maybe, maybe I could have gone further and harder. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Jenny Valentich has explored the edges, both the light and the dark, not only in her writing, but in the living of her life. She's the author of a new book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, but she's not just a book author. I'm a journalist, uh, which I think is one of the most privileged jobs you can possibly have. I mean, you get to just hang out with the most interesting people um, and just learn whatever you want to learn, really, and then share that information. So Jenny had an interesting start to journalism. I started off by self-publishing a little magazine that kind of got me into trouble, but also got me on the radar and got me my first columns. I've always um, had a bit of a nose for getting into scrapes and then wondering, however, how could that have happened? But, <laughs> but sometimes you can capitalize on it. So I, I got some early jobs as the kind of cheeky young upstart. How cheeky was Jenny? Well, the magazine she published was called Slapper, the groupie's guide to gropable bands. That's hilarious. While she's often found herself in the musical genre of writing, she's also been about transcending genres and not getting fenced in. I'm really interested in the idea of reinventing yourself, particularly after adversity, you know, like seizing the opportunity of a rock bottom or unnecessary change to rebuild. So uh, the first nonfiction book was about addiction. And I talked about how, how quitting drugs, including alcohol, it can be one of those rare transition opportunities we sometimes have thrust upon us, you know, like divorce or bankruptcy or redundancy or, or anything out of our control. Um, but how that really shakes you out of your complacency, you know, it's like a rip appears in your space-time continuum and <laughs> you can choose to jump through it or not. Standing on the precipice of change, staring into the uncertainty of the future, you're excited, you're anxious. But actually, if you look over your shoulder, you can see the clues to what's ahead by what's in our past. You, you have to really think back to what was really important to you when you were a kid. Um, what made you happy? What what lit you up inside? Uh, what were you good at? And often they're things that have fallen by the wayside. You know, so whether it was yeah, you know, I was really active and I just wouldn't stop running, racing around everywhere, or, or or you know, just creativity. So I think those are the things you not only hold on to, but really have to sort of encourage uh, to take a greater role. 
and I mean, the things you lose are, are the things that keep you awake at night, really. Like the, the, I mean, shame, I think, is the main thing that holds us back in life. Uh, and I think it's the main driver of addic- addictive behaviors, definitely. Shame's a big word. So I wanted to ask Jenny how she defined it. Well, shame is, I mean, it's different to guilt, isn't it? Because guilt is, um, I've done something wrong and mm. I really ought to be remorseful about it and fix that. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas shame is so much deeper and it's usually something that has even been put upon us. Yeah, it's like I am wrong, not I've done something wrong. Yeah, but often shame is involved in things like, um, you know, things like, well, sexual abuse and rape and, mm. and just and things where you are not the person at fault, but it is deeply shaming thing and then often you can sort of Mm. then your behavior as you progress through life because you're you're very sort of hurt can be shameful and Mm -hmm. so it's this accumulative kind of of process and I think to a degree you know we all we all gather that we all gather shame as we go and it just holds us back so much I think it's as I said I think it's the biggest driver of really self-destructive behavior I mean, you you sent through a little bio, um, and you know the opening line I love, which is, and it shows you're a writer. I think it says, you know, Jenny Valentich has been dancing around the void for decades, first in bars, and then in boxing rings. What's the connection to shame and the void? Hmm. Well, perhaps death wish. You know, <laughs> perhaps. Um... Perhaps the, the the need to sort of hurl yourself, I think this, the self-loathing that makes you want to curiously test how far you can push yourself in a, right. in a quite a negative way. Um, but I mean, with, with things like boxing and, and combat sports, I think that's a more productive way of exploring that, you know, that's right. um, an active sport with rules and regulations and respect um so that's a more productive way than you know just just getting wasted <laughs> it feels like this is a this this conversation I, I mean this conversation could go on for hours but i'm curious to know what book you've chosen to read for us jenny i've actually chosen a very manly book which might seem a bit odd at first <laughs> it's called the hero's body And it's by a journalist and author called William Giraldi. And it's uh, about, well, it's in two parts. It's a memoir. But the first part is about when he was a young man and he was a competing bodybuilder. But it really taps into, you know, what I wanted to talk about, which is reinvention. And particularly um, in my new book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, I look at people who do these quite extreme pursuits. Yeah. Um, one chapter is bodybuilding and at first I had this perception of bodybuilders like a lot of people might which is wow that's a bit over the top <laughs> you know <laughs> you know the kind of the rictus white grin and yes. the posing pouch and all that kind of thing you know the the temptation is to just dismiss it as narcissism or you know like body dysmorphia but the more I actually looked into it and shadowed people I thought actually this is a sport that attracts people who want to create some victory for themselves. You know, often right. um, they've had a really chaotic upbringing. 
Um, and if you think about it, bodybuilding is this pursuit which is so regimented. It's all about, right. you know, sets and reps and calculating macros and micros and every right. so aspect. Those rules that you're day. talking about before. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it brings order to chaos. And um, it can also be really appealing to people like, like William, who have had a real kind of loss of agency over their body when they were younger. So he had... Right. Uh, I think it was meningitis, but he had a you know really serious illness. He was hospitalised for a long time, uh, and he felt you know he felt very weak, and uh, he felt sort of disempowered, I guess. And then when he was a little older, he found this sport. You literally use iron mm. to to gain this sense of strength, and you can rebuild yourself however you want to. So that's uh, yeah. When that's we start a- with this book, he's he's training with his uncle for the first time. And did you just come across this book as part of the research for your new book or had it come into your life another way? Yeah, I came across it um, for the research and there was one thing he said and I just thought, wow, that just floored me. He said, um, he said he wanted to, he said, I want to make my own creation myth to mm. renovate my pathetic vessel into a hero's body. Wow. And I thought, yeah, that reminds me of one of my interviewees who said she needed to create victory for herself. I totally understand that. Right. I think you should jump in. This is going to be a great read. I'm sure of it. My uncle and I didn't gab as we trained. Or in those brief rests between sets, this was battle, not frolic. But if we gabbed before and after, we gabbed of professional bodybuilders, those gods and heroes self-made monuments, aberrations, the uber-mention among us, men superior to the unmuscled rabble of the world, men with alien ways who puked and bled in search of Mount Olympus, men who shunned the wimpy Christian ideal that puts a pretty soul above the perfection of the physical form, men who were magnificent Greeks, idolizing male beauty, believing that the bold exterior was an embodiment of the bold interior. Hercules, Achilles, Atlas, just look at them. Unholy monks of muscle, these men possess the brand of focus that has allowed ascetics to float free of their bodies, except that their focus necessitates a further filling of their bodies. Bodies forged into outrageous artwork, 3D anatomical charts startling enough to spook Andreas Vesalius, the father of anatomy. Part athlete, part artist, they have the training habits of the hell-bent. Muscle tissue is their clay, their choreography. Triumphant Greco warriors whose no pain no gain credo is Christic to its core, you must rove through hell to reach your heaven. Every professional bodybuilder becomes a nutritionist and chemist, a ritualist and rebel. Masters of nature, they achieve their own apotheosis. To exist in that world of extremity is to leave the rest of us behind almost completely. Remember how Ovid begins his metamorphosis. My purpose is to tell of bodies which have been transformed into shapes of a different kind. Waiting in the checkout line at the supermarket, you've noticed them on magazine covers. Muscular development and flex. You've no doubt picked one from the rack and fanned through it while you waited. To mock, I know, 
but the curiosity tickles a space in you much deeper than the nothingness of scorn. The unexamined feeling is revulsion. You impulsively dislike the otherworldly aesthetics of them, their suggestion of a hubristic tampering with nature, their vascularity, earthworms wriggling over striated muscle, and their terracotta complexions, their scant workout garb, penile mounds and spandex, their stone faces orgasmically determined, the imponderable mass of them, everything looks as if it's about to erupt. Peer more closely at that curious spot in you, just below the mocking and scorn, and see if there isn't a driblet of respect for the discipline, the religious training and dieting habits required to obtain that eurythmic muscle, the harmony of the whole neck to ankle machine. When you're looking at the best pro bodybuilders in the world, you're looking at a balance of form only a handful of human beings will ever achieve. Peek at the world champion Phil Heath and see how the linguistics of his body are closer to a poet's than an athlete's. No one, it's true, is born with those aesthetics, and that's why you must think it freakish and wrong. But art isn't born either. Art is built. In his absurdist novel, Body, the inimitable Harry Crews christens bodybuilders the mysterious others and the mad imaginings of a mad artist. Start thinking of these men as part artist, part athlete, and not as drug-stuffed showboats, and you might start to feel a subduing of that scorn. How poetic is that? Oh, he's a great writer. <laughs> he's a man who, well, he's quoting Ovid, so he's a man who likes literature and he, mm. he, likes, he likes alliteration. He's a very vivid writer. Yes, he is. I've got a ton of questions about this, Jenny, but I'm just curious to know, what is it about this passage that particularly struck a chord for you? Well, it's, I mean, I would say it's deliberately, um, you know, it's deliberately over the top and de deliberately kind of mm. triumphant in its tone, almost to the point of being obnoxious. But, you know, it's making the point that that there is this kind of internal noble quest. There's this very profound thing that is powering mm. these people to push themselves to this degree. And uh, it does make you question, well, well, what is it then? What lies beneath? What is it that is driving them? And that's what fascinates right. me. You know, you've, we've talked about the rules. Um, and, you know, when you, when you hear this, you know, your opening sentences are about this kind of waging a war on the kind of the weaker, imperfect body. Is there a place for joy in reinvention or is it all about discipline and endurance and rules and regulation? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I have been on my own kind of quest, not as a bodybuilder, but as a fighter. Mm. Uh, in Muay Thai, which is Thai kickboxing. And so by necessity, I've got stronger and stronger. Um, and, and, you know, that feeling of power and self-reliance, it, it is actually a really joyful experience. Um, it's it, Apart from anything else, it, it floods you after a, you know, 90-minute session with these these chemicals <laughs> that, right. that just put you on a, on a real feel-good high. Um, yeah. So yes, there is the joy. But having said that, um, 
quite a few of the people I interviewed for this book had a curious relationship with their body, like quite a dispassionate relationship, like almost like in the past, perhaps I tell you something as a little side note is quite common mm. with bodybuilders, but but of course not across the board. Something that is quite common is is um, sexual abuse. Right. Um, so if you think about the fact that, you know, in the past your body has been something that maybe you've tried to hammer into the ground with addiction or you've maybe you've, you know, you've um, you've tried to, you've had an eating disorder to make yourself appear smaller or conversely right. bigger to escape the gaze. Um, by the time you've found this sport that uses your body in a different way, you still might have quite an odd relationship with it, you know? So, you, right. so the women I interviewed for my book, the female bodybuilders, coincidentally, as I shadowed them and found out more about them, had both been sexually abused. And I found, you know, there's some really famous ones too, like male bodybuilders who, who've had this past and it is just quite common. Um, but it meant that they almost had this sense of wanting to reclaim their body. Like you work for me now. And mm. so when you compete, you know, you have all these different coaches, you have dietitians and, you know, you, you have your, your strength coaches and you're almost like a prize, but you're almost like best in show. Right. I mean, the way that you and your coaches will talk about your body, it's all about, you know, yeah, like, like outsourcing it. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And objectifying it. So it's not, part of you it's a an, a third point experiment that you exactly. and others are working on yeah yeah and i'll talk about you know carb loading and water cutting but almost as though you, you are talking about this this inanimate object mm -hmm. so on the one hand you've created this machine you know like this victorious machine it, it, you know to make yourself feel invincible but on the other hand it, it's uh, something that maybe there's a little bit of dissociation from do you find for you, Jenny, there's a there's a place of you can reach of satisfaction, or are you always on a quest? Oh, always, always on a quest. Um, everybody I interviewed for the book, I mean, I, I call them natural born leg jigglers, but um, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm a leg jiggler. <laughs> yeah, I'm jiggling right now. Um, they're all so goal oriented, which right. you know, on the one hand, that's great; it motivates you to do things and achieve things. But um, the paradox of being very goal-oriented is, is goals have disappointment built into them, you know, because you either achieve them and then you're bereft right. <laughs> and need a replacement, or you don't, and then you're disappointed and berating yourself. Um, so, again, in, in the spirit of balance, um, you need to be – I was listening to a uh, podcast with um, Professor Kieran Satir, that's S-E oh. – do you know who I mean? Yeah, he, I do. He's uh, just said yes to coming on as a guest of the uh, show. I think because I saw him quoted in the uh, the Guardian article that you wrote, oh. uh, No Goals, Why Is It So Hard to Do Something for Enjoyment's Sake? Which yes. I'd encourage people to to Google that and, and see Jenny's writing in the Guardian as well. Um, and I thought that's, the guy sounds really interesting, so I, I invited him onto the show. So he'll be he'll be a guest sometime in the future well, this will be a little plug then so yeah he wrote this book called midlife a philosophical guide yep. but he you know i heard him on a podcast talking about telic activities and atelic activities mm. and telic means goal-oriented there's an endpoint 
you know, perhaps there's a bit of fanfare as well. Uh, it could be, you know, it could be a race, it could be whatever, a book, whatever. Yeah. Uh, whereas atelic activities are things you do purely for enjoyment's sake without fanfare. There's no end point. And, um, you know, maybe these are a simplistic way of looking at things that we do. But uh, I looked at my life and I thought, I really don't have anything that I do for enjoyment's sake, um, apart from maybe take a stroll here and there. And I just can't <laughs> bear to do anything without there being a, a reason and a purpose. And so look what I did. Unfortunately, right. I'm one of those people who is a bit, you know, it counts for naught if nobody saw it. Um, so I, I guess, uh, I can't remember what the question was actually, but. I can't remember either. <laughs> I, so I, good, I've done I, something just for wafty atelic's sake. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the question originally was, is it always a quest or can you actually find a moment of satisfaction? No. <laughs> and, and what does that, what does that, what does satisfaction look like? Or is it just an endless running till you're dead? Yes. I mean, I think satisfaction is the process, isn't it? As they right. say, you know, it's the journey, not the destination. So writing this book, for instance, I really, really enjoyed every aspect of it and mm. at the same time I was on this quest to have an amateur fight and I enjoyed all the training and then as it happens both the fight and handing the book in like the week it went to the printer happened the same week and I was like <laughs> right. oh this is going to be a crash <laughs> yeah because I've achieved both things and you yeah. know you tie yourself to goals as well like you really tie your identity to them and you come to embody them. So once they're done, I, I have a bit of an identity crisis. Like, well, who am I now if I'm not Jenny who does the thing? Yeah. So just, now uh, I've got to find a, another thing. Well, I just saw a brief article with Alex Honus, I think his name is, the guy who free soloed up oh, yeah. that enormous mountain. Yeah. And he just said, I'm, I'm at a loose end because that is, that is the peak of my life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing I do now can, can, be better than that because it was the first and it was extraordinary and it was a five-year quest to get it done or longer perhaps um and he is casting around going look i'm not quite sure <laughs> what what to do now when you hit the ceiling yeah i mean i interviewed um a woman called uh, kayla harrison who who got a gold at the olympics twice for judo and then she just said she spiraled into what she calls olympic depression which is like well mm. where do you go from here so she just changed the sport and she was like oh just you know do it for enjoyment and then she you know nailed that sport so she's kind of like at right. the top of that field as well so <laughs> yeah so but she was um uh a big thing with sports psychology at the moment and sports psychology is like psychology on steroids mm. um is the importance of broadening your sense of who you are so you are not just the right. thing that you do. So if you look at athletes like social media bios now, quite often I've noticed it won't just say their sport, it will say things like um, advocate and this and that and just a whole list of things that they are, public speaker, right. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. As um, a way of saying I'm more, I'm more to just my performance on a field. Yeah, and I think they've been told, I think they've been trained to do that, like yeah. encouraged, because otherwise the drop, like the crash when you are injured or, or you have to retire yeah. is is just phenomenal. Well, let me ask you about, I mean, you know, your first amateur fight and the book in the same week. 
Um, that's an intense week. <laughs> how do you how do you celebrate? Um, um, after the fight, um, I mean, you're I can't even describe the high. Mm. It's just manic. <laughs> uh, so you just talk rubbish and um, babble, and you know. And then you have a big crash. Uh, but but generally speaking, um, there isn't really a pause to celebrate. Um, That's what I'm kind of curious about because <laughs> I'm I'm not that great at celebrating moments. You know, yeah. I've like I've crossed the finish line. I'm like, yeah, but is that the finish line? Yeah. What's the What's the real finish line? And I'm trying to learn how to stop and just notice the moment and celebrate the moment. And I'm wondering if you've learned anything along the way about how to do that. No, um, <laughs> especially I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person who's very novelty driven. So like, it's not my first book. And so there should have been a pause like, okay, the manuscript's gone to the publisher, go yeah. out, celebrate with your friends, have champagne. I didn't do that. Uh, it's all, it was all kind of like, yeah, I've done that before. Um, <laughs> so yeah. you're kind of thinking, okay, what next, what next, what next, but that is its own enjoyment. So maybe that is a celebration. And have you, have you, what have you learned around managing the crash? Because I have that as well. So I'm, you know, I'm asking for a friend, meaning I'm asking for myself. <laughs> it's like, have you, have you got any wisdom you can share around how best to manage that hard moment where you're like, well, I've been working on that for three years and I'm over it now. So now what am I doing? Um, I was talking to some endurance athletes about this and because they can spend like a year planning a race, sometimes even designing their own. And then afterwards, you know, can slump into depression and binge eating and this and that. And the only mm. thing that gets them out of it is organizing the next one. Um, despite what I know, which is that that's not the best idea. That is my way forward, but I'm, I'm a bit more forgiving of myself now. So I know for instance, like after the last book came out, I was pitching ideas so frantically at my agent and some of mm. them were ridiculous. There's this famous um, Steve Coogan, Alan Partridge sketch where he's pitching ideas to the head of the BBC <laughs> and he's not impressed and just, and Steve just gets more and more frantic and the ideas <laughs> get more and more out there. So last time I was kind of doing that and um, this time Captain I'm into your inner Steve Coogan. Yeah. No, nobody wants to go there. <laughs> <laughs> so this time I'm, I've said to myself, just have a period where you just let things percolate. Mm. Um, there's no rush. You've done this before and you know that it could actually take a couple of years before an idea goes click and slots into place. So just don't panic. Yeah. Don't panic. That's a great, actually that's great. Don't panic. Um, don't I think panic. I've, prob I've probably similar, you know, having gone through various yeah, uh, you know, climbed assorted mountains or maybe small hills, whatever, <laughs> and gone, okay, now what? Um, I've had enough people around me going, oh, <laughs> so the way you're feeling now is the way you felt every other time after something like that. So this is just <laughs> how you do it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got to keep remembering that this is just how I do it. Yes. And I it's so. part of the process, not a broken part of the process. It's just yeah. part of the Part of the process. You can think of it as just cycles, you know, and okay, well, this is a yeah. cycle where things recede a bit mm. uh, and you just sort of, um, 
you know, just keep talking about the last projects and like coasting on that a bit if you want. Yeah. Without just frantically. I think the problem is everyone asks what your next thing's going to be. <laughs> well, how do you how do you uncover what's next? Well, usually there's a spark from the last project, which I think, wow, I need to look into that more. Mm. So, I mean, I've got about four ideas that aren't just, they're just not quite right, but they're all related to things I've learned in the last book. But I'm so into the whole kind of um, immersion journalism and, you know, uh, journalists as science experiments kind of idea that uh, it will definitely involve some kind of dabbing in dabbing a toe in whatever it right. is so it's been a wonderful conversation um the question i love to ask at the end of all these conversations is this what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me yeah you do ask that so i should have thought of this um <laughs> 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 well one thing I, I i noticed a lot with people that i interviewed that i just thought was so interesting was um, a lot of them were pressure testing themselves. Mm. So it's almost like the kind of concept of a vaccine. You know, you have a small dose of something to protect you in the future. Um, I I felt like a lot of people, when I interviewed people who were doing like bare knuckle boxing and very violent deathmatch wrestling and stuff, they were always wanting to test that they were strong enough. and it was people who'd who'd had some reason to be fearful in the past. And I realized, well, that's kind of like, you know, what, what Freud would have called, um, well, what's basically called traumatic reenactment. Mm. Like he called it repetition compulsion. Uh, but I thought, well, maybe that's true of a lot of athletes and a lot of us in general. You know, we're always people who push themselves are actually just checking, just checking I can still handle the things that life has to throw at me. I've been thinking about where the edge is a lot over the last year or so. I mean, on my desk is a bit of paper and there's a couple of lines on it, the final lines from a Rilke poem, a poem called The Man Watching. And the lines are this, winning does not tempt him. His growth is to be the deeply defeated by ever greater things. You know, that that statement is really the, the spiritual heart, the muse of my new book, which is you know, coming out in January 2022, by the way. But this conversation with Jenny has got me thinking about what's driving us to the edges, to be willing to take on the things that are scary and daunting and impossible and harder than everybody else. Are we running away from something or are we moving towards something essential? Is this a quest that enriches our life? I mean, what's the price we might be paying for a relentless ambition and restlessness? Am I trying to increase control or are we surrendering to something greater than ourselves? I mean, these are big questions. I don't have the answers to these, but I feel like these are the questions to ask you, to ask me, to ask ourselves as we claim our own ambitions. If you're interested in Jenny's work, you can find her on Twitter at Jenny Valentish. Um, or on Instagram at JennyValentish underscore public and her website JennyValentish.com as well. Thanks, of course, for listening. It is always delightful to have delightful people like you listen to the episodes. Um, 
three things you can do if you want. One is give the podcast a review on your podcast app. I always love that. I'm grateful for it. Um, secondly, recommend uh, an episode to a friend of yours. You know, it is a slow, hard growth. It's an edge to grow an audience listening to a podcast and really word of mouth is the best way. Um, so if there's if this episode has struck a chord for you, is there somebody in your life you'd like to recommend it to? And thirdly, if you want a little more, we have a free membership site called The Duke Humphreys, named after my favorite library at Oxford. It's where you can find downloads, you can find transcripts of all the podcasts, you can find some unreleased episodes, totally free. You'll find that at mbs.works and find the podcast page and it will be there. Thanks for listening. You're awesome and you're doing great.